Hey, you are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. You know what it's going to take for us to really catch the idea of what Colossians is about is that it's going to take all of us to make it happen. And there's this word teamwork that gets pushed and sent around to just about every kind of organization that we have, and no different here than it is anywhere else. It happens when people work together toward a common goal. You can work as a team to move a couch up a flight of stairs and figure out how you're going to get around that corner, or how to launch a work project, or how to play soccer. All sorts of tasks just become easier when faster whenever we have a team on it. More than speed or ease, though, big or complex projects require teamwork, and it isn't, it's absolutely a choice for us. We gotta have people. Teamwork stretches us beyond what we're able to do, and teaming up against the flow, as we've been talking over the last several weeks in the book of Colossians, is no different when it comes to the end of Colossians. All of us can see it in the life of, uh, if I can call them this, the Canada geese. You know, the Canada geese, they're all over right now. And right now, you'll see them beginning to fly in what is a V formation. Well, there's some things that we can learn about teamwork from them as they wing their way to warmer climate and they travel thousands of miles in distance. I have several of them that I thought were really kind of imperative for us to understand in regards to teamwork. Here's the first one. Those in front rotate their leadership. When one lead goose gets tired, it changes places with one in the wing of the V formation and another flies at the point. Here's the second thing. As flying as they do, by flying as they do, the members of the flock actually create an upward air current for one another. So each flap of one wing creates an uplift for the bird immediately following behind it. One author states that by flying in a V formation, the whole flock gets 71% greater flying range than if each each goose flew on its own. Here's the third thing. When one goose gets sick or wounded, and you've seen this before, I see it before because I live along the river where you see like, where are the rest of you at? There's only two or three of you here. When one goose gets sick or wounded, two fall out of formation to follow it down and help to protect it, and they stay with it until they struggle, until it can fly again. And then this last one is, The geese in the rear of the formation are the ones who do all the honking. That's what happens in my vehicle every time I have someone in the back seat, for sure. I suppose it's their way of announcing and following all of it, like, keep going, you've got it, keep doing it, you're all right, we're following you, we're right here. It's encouragement along the way that we're doing what we need to do. Now I have one more that wasn't listed in the things that I have, and that is, isn't it interesting how geese help us to understand how much we appreciate golf courses and parks and rivers and where we walk and where we step. They, they actually help us in that regard. And the reality is we need to learn from them the reality of teamwork. And Paul, in the book of Colossians, is going to close this chapter by talking about the team of people that he wants in his formation, how much he needs them. And I'm just going to say it like I've been saying it this, in, this entire series. Do not look at this chapter in reference to all of us. Look at it in reference to you. You need a team. I need a team. Now, I can say, we need a team. And you'll see and hear lots of team effort opportunities around here, but we're gonna see how Paul encourages us 
to have a team in regards to the journey. We're going to look at verse 2 of chapter 4, and we're going to go through verse 6 to just talk about some further instructions that he gives us. I call them daily duties, things that we just all have to do as a part of the team, individually and collectively. Let's take a look at it, verses 2 through 6. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's the duties the things that we're called to do. He's signing out the rest of this letter. He's closing it out with a sincerely yours Paul moment, and he wants to make sure this PS gets added. So what are some of those work duties that we have? One of them in verse two says, the work of prayer. The work of prayer. Paul says to be devoted, devoted to prayer. Now, I don't know that anybody in here can say, I'm devoted to prayer. It's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to make happen in regards to that. But he is calling the Colossian church to be devoted to, to, to prayer. What does that mean for us? He kind of breaks it down a little bit, and he does it through some of his other letters. So you're going to hear me referring to Paul's other letters in regards to these duties of prayer. One of them is to continue in prayer. To continue in prayer, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says this, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray and not give up. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, one of those small verses that everybody can memorize like Jesus wept. Here's the second one for you. Pray continually. I dare you to memorize it. Pray continually. You can repeat after me. Pray continually. That's a verse of scripture. Like, I don't know much scripture. Pray continually. Do you know that one? You can memorize that one. What he's actually saying is that after you pray, then you pray. And after that, you pray again. And then you pray again. And you pray again. Continuing to pray moves you into a closer pursuit of God, for sure. Then he also calls us in prayer to watch in prayer to watch in prayer. First Peter chapter four, verse seven says it this way. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and sober minded so that you may pray. You see, when you work at prayer by watching, it makes you look and think ahead. You see things well into the horizon whenever you begin to watch and pray. You see things that other people can't see because you're praying in advance of the coming of that moment and you know that it's on its way. And that's, that's, that's the reality of watching and praying. We're looking ahead instead of so much praying in the rearview mirror of the past. Then he says that we need to be thankful in prayer. Do you thank God every day? And I'm just thinking for little things, and I have to tell you this, I, I don't do it all the time, but there every once in a while when I go, I'm blinking, I'm breathing, my heart is beating, I'm not concentrating on that, right? It's just happening. It happens all the time. But I am so grateful when someone doesn't have the ability to blink, I have the ability to blink. Uh, when someone is hooked up to something that's making a beep on a heart monitor somewhere, I'm so glad my heart's still beating. And so thankful in prayer. 
The story is told of two old friends who bumped into one another on the street one day. One of them looked forlorn, almost on the verge of tears. His friends asked, what in the world's wrong with you? Sad fellow said, well, let me tell you. Three weeks ago, my uncle died, and he left me $40,000. Now, that's a lot of money. But two weeks ago, a cousin I never even knew died and left me $85,000, free and clear. Sounds like you've been blessed, he says. Well, you don't understand. Last week, my great aunt passed away, and I inherited a quarter of a million dollars. Now he's really confused. Then why do you look so glum? And he said, this week, nothing. Isn't that how it is? We all want more and more and more, and we forget to be thankful for the little thing that happened along the way. And we need to be thankful and let our hearts be filled with thanks to God on a regular basis. Thankfulness allows you to realize your place and put God where he deserves to be. Philippians chapter 4, again another letter of Paul, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then he says to be considerate in prayer Be considerate in prayer, and interesting to observe that this is the only prayer request that Paul made in the whole epistle of Colossians. He's asking them, he's asking the church at Colossae to pray for him, and we've got to remember that he's in prison right now. He says he's still in chains, and he did not ask for, would you help me to be released from prison? Would you pray that I get out of here? He didn't, he didn't ask them to pray that, that the Lord would send people to visit him so he wouldn't be alone. No, he prayed so that people would know Christ Jesus. That's how he asked them to pray, to be considerate in prayer. In the same way, your prayer should also cause, it should go to the cause of Christ first. Before anything else, Christ, are you known? Are people meeting you? Are people running into you? It's our evangelistic call that we want to make sure that more and more people know who he is. We pray for the gospel to go forward everywhere. And we look outwardly to our work, to our school, to our neighbors, to our families, and quite frankly, to the world. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says it this way, and pray in the spirit on all occasions that all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. It's considerate in prayer. But then he, he, he steps into another kind of realm in verse 5 where he actually wants us to walk in wisdom. He wants us to walk as wise people. And he, and he gives us two kind of versions of how we do that. One is the way you act toward outsiders. And that would be people that don't know who Christ is. The way you act toward outsiders. How do these people see you live? Like, how do they, do they watch you? Do you think they're watching you? Do you think no one pays attention to you? That they have other things to do? Man, I think people are watching what we do, especially if they know we come here. And they want to see what our walk is different than theirs. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says it this way. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business, work with your hands just as you were told, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. It's a duty to walk in wisdom. But he also not only tells us how we act toward outsiders, but he says, make the most of every opportunity. You ever say to yourself, man, I had a chance with that person and I lost it. I missed it. I had this moment where I could have told them something and I didn't. I could have shared something with them. I could have prayed with them and I did. You had an opportunity and you missed it. Make the most of every moment. 
Ever think about how many moments you walk into and out of all the time that an outsider can see? I mean, how moments do you have? Uh, What do you do with those moments? Allow every moment to be a moment that someone might see. Paul says, see to it that you take advantage of every opportunity. Actually, the Greek word translated opportunity is this word. It's a great word called kairos. Opportunity. Kairos. It's about time. It it probably implies the opportune time, the perfect moment. Take advantage of the kairos moment that you have in front of you. The best, most effectual, most productive occasion that you can have. Not in some other place, but the one you have in front of you. But then he says, okay, so we talk about prayer. We talk about um, We talk about taking advantage of the opportunities by walking in wisdom. And then he gives us this. He gives us words with grace. Verse 6, great verse. It's a duty to talk about grace. Uh, Give gracious words is what we're called to do. How do you find yourself speaking (laughs) to other people? Uh, Are you you remembering that the words that you use are to encourage and not to tear down? Speech most effectively expresses what's inside every believer. And that, when I say that, make sure you hear what I'm saying. Speech most effectively expresses what's inside the believer. The Christian speech should mirror the gracious character and conduct of our God by demonstrating love and patience and sacrifice and undeserved favor. So give gracious words. But then he also says, allow those words to be full-flavored. Now, I use the word full-flavored He said, seasoned with salt. Salt probably represented both attractiveness since salt makes food more appealing and wholesome. Isn't it interesting that one of the ingredients that we set on our table on a regular basis is that. We want a little flavor. What do we do? Grab the shaker, grab the grinder, and we start adding salt. It brings flavor to life. I just want to ask you a question real quick, and you know where I'm headed, I think. How many of you love sweet things? If you were to go after a, after a snack, you'd pick a sweet thing. Anybody do that? How many of you pick a salty thing? I'm with you on that one. And then there's some people that like a handful of both. I want that popcorn with the caramel and the salt on it at the same time. They're like mixing it all up. Why? Because you like full flavor. You like full flavor. I'll tell you, in my home, we have a whole, over here on, the, on this side, we, we have this whole place of all these sauces, salts and sauces and, and things you can dump on something, right? And everybody, and we have people that like multiples, you know, like dun, 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 dun. Like we drown our food as though it doesn't taste good enough, but we want to add more flavor to it. And that's exactly how our speech should be. It should be so full of life. Speech is most of the festive way that we can do that. And so we must give it away in how we talk to one another. And what I've learned through all of this is that grace is always the answer. Can your, can your speech be filled with such a way that you just kind of give grace away in what you say? It's gracious in how you talk. It's filled with God's grace everywhere. You, ever think of where you would go without grace? How many times your life would have missed out on a great opportunity had grace not been given to you? And why our words would be filled with the amazing grace of Jesus is because it's amazing. It's an amazing kind of grace. And so our words then reflect the grace of Jesus. Then we get to the rest of this text, verses 7 through 18. And it says final greetings at the top of my little section. I mean, it's so much more than that. I think it's more than that. It's Paul's friends, the Christians that I need to have in my life. 
It's the team that he's talking about. Some of these I'm going to butcher the name, and you're going to come and correct me. It's okay. I don't live there, and I don't use these names on a regular basis, but we're going to give it our best shot as we read through it together, okay? Verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will uh, help you with the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is with you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Articicus, sends us his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. And if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is, who is, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they approved of comfort to me. Ephraim, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in, in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all of the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. My, my dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to my brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And after this letter has been read to you, see it to it that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read that letter from Laodicea. Tell Agrippicus that to see to it that he completes the work that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, let's talk about these friends that he has and let's just see how many of them you have in your life, okay? So let's start with this group of people that I would call the faithful. Everybody needs a group of faithful people on their team. Titicus is actually the person he talks about in verse seven and eight, and he calls him dear brother. Dear brother. So this is, I, I wanna make sure we get it. Titicus is actually the mailman. He's the one who's actually delivering the letter that Paul is taking to the Colossian church. Now, this is no easy task. Paul was in prison in Rome over a thousand miles away, and Titicus would have to cross Italy on foot. He'd have to sail across the Adriatic Sea, cross Greece on foot, sail across the Aegean Sea, and then walk an additional 100 miles on foot to Colossae. Think your mailman has a tough job. This guy had a tougher one. And Paul calls him a brother. And I'll tell you, if I could have the Apostle Paul say that about me, I'd be one happy man. I mean, what would it be like to know that Paul thought of you as a brother? If I could labor with Paul for years and the man is my beloved brother, man, that's a commendation that anybody would like to hear. He was a brother. He was one of his family. He was beloved and he earned that designation. And I suppose it's the fulfillment of a man's life to know that he's loved because a brother a true brother is one who tells you the truth, comes alongside of you in the battles that you face. A brother calls when you're discouraged and protects you when you're picked on. He helps you with a project. He loves you when you do stupid things. This is Paul's brother. And so I would ask you, do you have a brother? Then we have Archidicus in verse 10. He's a fellow prisoner said in some languages. And I would say it this way. It's one who feels the burdens with you. 
Articus understood the burden that Paul was feeling and experiencing. And here in Colossians, Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. I don't think it's like some sort of slang word like he used to use whenever he would call some of his coworkers his fellow soldiers as though Paul were fighting, right? He was, but a different kind of battle, right? But I think Paul really means fellow prisoner. Paul calls him the same man that Euphrates, a fellow prisoner in the letter of Philemon, chapter or verse 23 in Philemon. I think both of these men suffered prison time for the gospel at some point. And although not necessarily at Paul's present time in Rome, let me just ask you this question. Do you have anybody that has joined you in your prison? And you can say, I've never been locked up. I'm not talking about that. You've been locked up with something. All of us have been prisoners to something somewhere in our time. And having a fellow prisoner is somebody who was actually in the same situation you were in. They understood what it was like to be in your shoes. They know what it's like. And you have that person you can go to and like, you just know how life goes. It's a good thing to have a person in your life that's a fellow person, a person who's unique and a place that goes with you. But we also have a part of the faithful, a man by the name of Justice in verse 11. And he calls him a person who comforts me. See, Jesus was a common name at the time, but for obvious reasons, Paul identifies justice by his second name instead of Jesus, so it wouldn't be confusing to the people he was writing to. We don't know much about justice, but we know that he was one of only three Jews who were serving with Paul at this time, and this was a great comfort to Paul because most of the Jews were hostile to Paul and his message. Paul may have had... Uh, been an apostle of, of the Gentiles, but he had a heart for his fellow Jews. And Paul loved the Jewish people fiercely and longed to see them come to Christ. And so I would just say, does everyone need a comforter in their life? Someone who can come alongside of them and help them in the comforting parts of their life. That person hears what you're going on. They're soothing words for you on the hurts and experiences you have. Do you have a justice in your life? Then he goes on with a faithful people and he says, Luke in chapter 14, a dear friend, a dear friend. Luke was a Gentile believer who was Paul's good friend and his personal physician, which would really been cool because as many times as he had rocks thrown at him, I'd like to have a doctor on the scene. Many times I had, I would just sit with a bunch of sticks. Who's, who's bandaging him up? Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke's taking care of him along the way. In fact, he went on so many missionary journeys, I guess Luke would be the first medical missionary. Luke's the writer of the Gospel of Luke, book of Acts in the Bible. In fact, it's fun when you read through the book of Acts, you notice that Luke shifts from writing, they did this or they did that to we did this and we did that. And every time he shifts to we, he joins Paul in part of the journey. And so I would say, do you have a dear friend? Who's on your faithful team? We need faithful people. The ones who just know we can count on for anything. Then we have the forgiven. Before I go any further, let me just tell you this. I believe this church is filled with all of these people. I mean, when I, I just believe the church is filled with all of these the faithful people. I'm going to get ready to tell about the forgiven people. Anybody in the room forgiven here besides me? We have a bunch of forgiven people around us. Well, let's look at the forgiven people that he announces. He announces Onesimus in verse 9. You can read more about him in Philemon, um, verses 11 through 18. So who is Onesimus? Onesimus is a runaway slave, the subject of Paul's letter to Philemon. And when we learn the letter of Philemon that Onesimus did not know Christ when he first ran away, he actually came to Christ through Paul's witness. And now Paul was sending him back to his master, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother in Christ. Paul wrote early in the book of Colossians, 
chapter 3, verse 11, that in Christ there's no slave or free, that we're all in this together. And Onesimus is an example of that. I need and want some forgiven people around me. Why? Because they remind me of where we all used to be. They remind me of where we all used to be. And even in the version, if they say, I may not have their same story, but when I hear their story of forgiveness, it encourages me in the fact that I too have been forgiven. We also have a forgiven person in this list by the name of Mark. Verse 10, he speaks of Mark. We can read about him in Acts 13 and Acts 15 and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, remembering that Mark lost trust with Paul when he deserted him during his first missionary journey. But now Mark is working with Paul once again, and Paul even tells the people at Colossae to welcome him, probably because some people may have still been holding something against him for deserting Paul in the past. Later on, Paul will call Mark to his final imprisonment in Rome, 2 Timothy chapter 4. What I learned about these people, Onesimus and Mark, that there's always a second chance. There's always a second chance in the forgiven people. Mark is a, a great reminder that God's not finished with you and me yet. And even if you failed, God does not live in the past. He lives in the future. And he lives to what's going to be better. And just because you have a past doesn't mean you don't have a future. God is a God of second chances. And Mark has restored the ministry and God can restore you too. Who are the forgiven that help you to demonstrate the greatness of forgiveness? Have some forgiven people around you so they can, if you don't have a good forgiveness story, man, get some good forgiveness stories around you. Like, listen to this guy's story. He'll change your life. Then I put down here, this is a weird one, the fickle. I know, not the forgiven, you know, not the faithful, the fickle. We have some fickle people in our life, and this one he mentions is Delmas. Delmas is fickle. He's only mentioned uh, not only in verses 12 and 13, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 2, uh, Delmas is uh, not mentioned any other spot. However, we learn in the book of 2 Timothy that later Demas um, deserted Paul's during his second imprisonment in Rome. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. He's deserted me. And I'm just going to say this. Everybody needs a deserter. I know that sounds weird, but you have somebody who was faithful, and all of a sudden, he saw the world and took off. Why? Because we learn from the fact that we don't want to be that guy, first off, and we find out, again, how much we need to learn grace and forgiveness in our speech and attitude. Because he started off really strong, but eventually he deserts him. And now, in the church, he's mentioning him. He's mentioning him to like to greet him. Make sure you say hi to him. John MacArthur pointed it out this way. He said that Jesus had his Judas, and Paul had his Demas. Who do you have? Somebody that was really faithful at one time. They're not faithful anymore. It teaches you, again, the idea of how to extend grace to people. People can and will eventually let you down, but God will never do that. And so I would say that in this part of the fickle part, it is how you finish that counts. Demas is an example of someone who failed to finish well. And Paul tells us that Demas abandoned him because Demas loved the world. First John chapter two, verse 15, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. A Christian life is not a 100 yard dash. I'm so grateful for that. It's a marathon. And you need to go to the distance. And Demas loved the world, which means he stopped seeing his heart and his mind on the things that were above. He started looking at the things that were here. 
And Demas is a warning to us to keep Christ at the center so that we'll finish well. And then I would challenge you to have some people like this, the famous in your world. Who's famous in your world? I'd like to say that all of us could collectively say that Jesus is the most famous one we have in our life. And it's in that conversation of describing and talking about the famousness of Jesus that I would ask you to turn to your communion right now. That you would turn to the Lord's Supper as you open it and let me just tell you about the reason he's so famous in our life and why we want the famousness of Jesus in our life. If there was anybody of fame I'd want near me, it's not a movie star, it's not a home run hitter, it's not somebody who can run for thousands of yards on the football field. It's Christ Jesus himself. And the way that Jesus was famous because he saved the entire world by making an atonement that is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. And that's why John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus was crucified, that one death that he died on the cross at Calvary was sufficient enough to take away the sins of the entire world. To put that into context, I cannot do. One man dies for an entire world. How do I help you to understand that other than to say it? And that's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Your focus this morning is on the fact that the atonement of Jesus was actually sufficient to save the world, and that includes you. As Charles Wesley wrote in a hymn, he said, Lord, I believe we're sinners more than sands upon the ocean shore. Thou hast the ransom fully paid. Thou hast a full atonement made. A full atonement, sufficient for all of us, dying once for all. What a way that we can thank him and praise him just now. As you bow your heads, would you take a moment to thank him? now, Lord, we come thanking you again, not for the famousness of what you've done on some field or what you know about theology, but who you are. You are God, and you have left the throne of heaven to come and be human, to allow yourself to take on all of our sins upon yourself, to die once and for all, that we would be freed from our past, that we would be forgiven people. And we thank you again for the famousness of who you are because now we want your name to be renowned. We want to announce it to everyone who it is that has redeemed our lives and set us free from our past. We come one more time again remembering and recalling what it is you did by allowing your body and your blood to be shed on that cross for each one of us to redeem us individually, to save us all from our own despair, from the hell that we create, the hell that we choose. Father, I thank you so much for loving us through it all, for giving us and giving us this moment when we can reflect on you. We give it to you now in Jesus' name, amen. Now, church, one more time. Thank you for the, the famousness of who Jesus is as you remember the body of our Savior nailed to a cross. And remembering again how you're forgiven because of his shed blood on the cross that redeems you. Jesus. We get to the end of this very letter, and Paul begins and ends with the same word, grace.
He started his letter and he ended his letter. And finally, Paul closes these simple words, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Paul never got tired of proclaiming God's amazing grace and sending his son to die on a cross for his sins. He began his letters with the words in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father. And now he ends the letter with the final benediction. Grace be with you. The letter of Colossians begins and ends with it. It's critically important to all of our life. And so it would kind of be kind of a cool thing as a church if you didn't know what to say and signing off with somebody. Now you just say, Grace be with you. Grace be with you. I know we say peace be with you. I like that one too. But grace be with you. One believer to another. As our team comes, I close with this story about grace. Given by Jeffrey Zasklow. He said that years ago, my father coached a team of eight-year-old boys. He had a few excellent players and some who just didn't get the hang of the game. Dad's team didn't win one time all season long. But in the last inning of the last game, his team, his team was only down one run. And there was a boy who had never been able to hit the ball or to catch it whatsoever. With two outs, it was his turn to bat. And he surprised the world, and he got a single. Now, the next batter was the team slugger. And finally, Dad's players might win a game. There's a chance. There's hope. The slugger connected, and as the boy who hit the single ran to second, he saw the ball coming toward him. Not so certain of baseball's rules, he caught it. Final out. Dad's team lost. Quickly, my father told his team to cheer. The boy beamed. It never occurred to him that he'd lost the game. All he knew was that he'd hit the ball and he had caught it, both for the first time. His parents later thanked the dad. Their child has never gotten in a game in a season. We're never, we never told that boy exactly what happened, he says. We didn't want to ruin it for him. And to this day, I'm proud of what my father did that afternoon. And if I can say it to you this way, I'm really proud that our father did what he did in an afternoon. I'm grateful that he extended grace to us when we couldn't hit and we couldn't catch, but he put us in the game anyway. And quite frankly, he said the job of making sure that my name is famous to as many people as possible is gonna be left with my dear friends I leave behind. And it is no different with us today. We're the dear friends that continue the book of Colossians. Oh, say hi to and greet them and be faithful to that guy that you, I know you don't want to forgive. And make sure that my name is renowned. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. So our Savior on that day became the greatest dad ever. He allows his son to come and die in a place for us so that we are all redeemed people, saved from our past, set free from where we used to be. And he put us in the game, and all of a sudden, we became hitters and fielders for him. We're the guys in the field. We're the guys making the plays. And I know we catch the ball when we're not supposed to catch the ball. 
but we're giving everything we can to the one who put us in the game. That's where Colossians leaves us. Leaves us with the idea that we've been put in the game. And oh, how we want to live in a redeemed way, knowing that one more time we'll offer an invitation to anyone who would say yes to him, who would need a savior as Lord of their life, that they would say yes to confessing him as Lord, that they would repent from the past that he's been talking about in this book for us to look at, that we would look ahead at what it is we get to have together. And as we seal the crease in this book one more time, we know that our sins can be washed away by only one who can redeem us this day. We need church family. We need team members. We need people to assemble to make this thing happen. And I'm so grateful that we're in a church that does all of these things. Where would we be without teamwork? And we need you to be on that team as well. And so we're going to call you one more time to an invitation as we close this chapter. Let's stand and let's sing and come together. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com.